Hello and welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here, joined by Gordon Webster. Good evening, Mr. Barry. <laughs> we are here. How are you? Oh, I'm great, thank you. How are you? I'm doing better. As you know, I was struggling with a really bad cold the last one. And that's fantastic. We are having to literally almost sit <laughs> we're so close to each other right now. Um, it's like Bond and Trevelyan. Yeah. Uh, yes, we have uh, got an interesting setup right now where we're just using one mic and uh, we've got boxes up to try and break up the sound and things like that. It's uh, very, uh, very elaborate. It's gold. Goldfinger would be proud. Um, <laughs> this is obviously a special edition of the Bond Daft podcast. This is a bonus episode similar to what we did with the music episodes a few months back, Gordon. We're now doing a review, a film review of Never Say Never Again. That's the other version of Thunderball, the sort of one that's not really inc- it's not included as part of the Eon Bond films. Um, we will go into the whole... We've, we've talked about it before previously um, with the whole lawsuit with Cubby Broccoli and uh, Kevin McClory. Um, we'll go into that in a minute. Uh, again, just to kind of, in case anybody hasn't listened to a previous podcast. But yes, Sean Connery has is returning in Never Say Never Again, which almost feels like a play on, on words and in, in sense that it might be referring to him personally. It was, and it was his wife that came up with the title. Was it? Yeah. Who, Sean Connery's wife? Yeah. Oh, right. His okay. current wife, not his first yeah, wife. Yeah, his first, yeah. Okay, so Gordon, uh, we obviously were meant to have uh, a third member for this one, Fran003. Uh, um, oh, I may have just got a text from him. Let's just check. <laughs> we're waiting on our takeaway as well. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, so yeah, we were meant to have a third person. Steve also couldn't make it. He's in America enjoying life. Um, but Fran has other things going on uh, that sounds really cryptic <laughs> he, he couldn't make it because of work commitments uh, like um like old pierce said and was it the world's not enough he was buried with work yeah and he's it's not a blowfeld-esque sort of uh elaborate murder or anything like it's not been fed to piranhas or anything no. he just is uh he just couldn't make it he, he is finding the course quite intense i think but yeah i don't i think i don't think it's anything that bad I think he relishes the challenge I think he lo- he's loving it I've never seen him actually happier anyways let's let's yeah. stop talking about that uh, <clears throat> crap uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's 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 move on to Never Say Never Again this was a 1983 film yeah there it's- we go I so let's let's uh, I'll try and not sound so surprised. I wasn't sure of the year. Uh, James Bond, 1983. Did this come out in the same year as an actual other Bond film? Yeah, it went head to head with Octopussy. Right. And we're we're of course just about to get into the Roger Moore era with Love and Light Die, 1973. Uh, so ten years later, this was 1983, and Roger was well into stride by this point. Sixth film, it went head to head with Octopussy. That's amazing. And is there, do we know if the figures, box office figures, was there a winner in that scenario? I think it was Octopussy, yeah. Just being, you know, the official Eon production. And I think there was an attempt made to try and get some of the the crew associated with the, the Eon Bond films involved with this, like John Barry, for example, for the music. And they approached Peter Hunt as well, but they declined because of their loyalty to Eon for understandable reasons. Okay, this seems like a good time to actually go into this. I know that it might be sounding, if you've listened to our previous podcast, this is kind of going to repeat a little, but I feel like it is necessary. If we're going to talk about this film, you kind of need to go into a bit of the backstory of why this film exists, because it is quite important. So, 
I hate to put it on you, Gordon, but you're probably better at explaining it. Um, on the the sort of shenanigans around the the loss the lawsuits with Fleming and Thunderball and things like that. So you yeah. want to give us a little insight into why did this film happen? Yeah, and can I just say I've I don't think I've actually seen this entire film before. I've seen probably most of the bits on ITV4, but it's, it's pretty much a remake of Thunderball, and I, I get the impression that Kevin McClory had it produced just because he could, and so he he won the, the story rights to Thunderball. The background was, which I mentioned in the Thunderball podcast, was the original screenplay written for Thunderball was by Kevin McClory, Jack Whittingham, and Ian Fleming together. Ian Fleming was still writing the Bond novels at the time, and this was the year, it's 1961, I think it was, the year before Doctor No was made. And, of course, Ian Fleming published the novel with, you know, using elements of the story for the screenplay he wrote, putting into the novel. And this resulted in a, a big um, legal battle, which went on years. And you might notice in Downs Are Forever, Spectre were clearly in that. Blofeld was clearly in it, but not once did they mention the name Spectre. So it was clear by the early 70s that... Um, McClory was throwing in a few legal shenanigans here and there. And so he kind of had the, the screen rights to, to Spectre and he was constantly threatening to do his own version of Thunderball and eventually he did it. And even once he did it, he wanted to do another one. There was almost a third Thunder, I mean, a that, second Thunderball remake. That's obsession at that point, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, misguided when it's, you know, 20 years of, of of lawsuits and things like that. It's like, Jesus, man, just just let it go. I know it's nuts, but do you know, I can kind of see his argument to an extent. Oh, he certainly. Felt it. I, I, I can't imagine what it's like to feel that you've created something and then for, or been part of a collaborative process where something's been created, but you've not been given the due credit. And then you've seen the success of the Bond franchise from the books all and, and the films. Then I suppose there would be a, he would have a, a bee in his bonnet about that. Um, yeah, and it wasn't just the fact that he'd helped write the hugely successful Thunderball. They, this screenplay that they originally did was in '61, before a single Bond film had been released. So that they were, he was meant to be part of the genesis of Bond on the screen, and get, so he was arguing that all this knock-on success from Doctor No from Russia, Goldfinger, that was all because of a screen character that he helped create, and he was obviously losing out financially because of this. So I, I can see why. He was upset about that. But, I mean, who knows what really happened? I mean, a lot of this is hearsay. We might never know the real truth about it. But, I mean, whatever happened, happened and in 1983. So, we're basically getting a remake of Thunderball. And, like, can I just say, actually, there is a, there's a few, like, kind of stellar actors and actresses in this. We've got Kim Bassinger plays Domino, who, of course, was played... Uh, by Claude Nozier and Thunderball and Largo. He's actually called Maximilian Largo, I think, not Emilio Largo, who was played by Adolfo Celli. Edward Fox is in it playing M. Rowan Atkinson's even got a small part. So, And, then, of course, the director was Irvin Keshner of Empire Strikes Back Oh, my fame. God. Irvin Keshner. I did not realise that. That's yeah. amazing, actually. That is some cast, just listing that. Yeah. It's unbelievable, then, that this film... I mean, it doesn't feel like a film that's... Because it's not included as part of the Bond films, it has kind of feels like a forgotten film. Like I only knew about it because I knew my dad used to always talk about how Connery came back for an unofficial film, and after having a gap of what twelve years is that since yeah twelve years, and given remember his aversion to the paparazzi and the Bond mania, it's it's amazing they got him back. It'll be interesting to see his performance because. 
Um, we we both agreed there was something lacking with him, and you only lived twice. And diamonds are forever. He was kind of for the money. Yeah, I mean, our diamonds are forever podcast isn't up yet, but uh, you, that'll be up at some point um, shortly, hopefully. And uh, yeah, it's his performance was not well loved. I would say it was a kind of fl- flagging. Is probably the best way to say it. It was a kind of phoned in performance nothing in comparison to his those first three films maybe first four i would say yeah it was right it was about an hour and something of just pure barriers for us really i mean i i i made it very clear my how much i disliked that film i was actually surprised i wasn't the you one that didn't... slammed it the most actually yeah. I, I was steve steve but... steve really didn't enjoy that um uh, yeah so we need a good performance out of conway after that and you know i knew something ominous was happening because um i started feeling my cold coming on a day before that film i think it was a <laughs> okay um okay we've kind of we've kind of more or less um went into as much as i want to go into before it uh is there anything plot wise if anybody hasn't listened obviously to the previous podcast and things like that should we bring people up to speed on the sort of basic plot of well thunderball slash never say never again yeah i suppose we should and uh, some of this might come as a surprise to me because i'm not completely familiar with this film of but course yeah again, uh, <laughs> again it revolves around uh Bond being um, dispatched to recover two stone nuclear warheads, which were well more or less described as atomic bombs and Thunderball, and it's Spectre that's behind it, and Bond has to, I believe he goes back out to Nassau again and that, and of course Steve McCall, uh, we mentioned of course Mad John to um, the West Highlands of Scotland, just up the road, Steve McCall was in Nassau, I believe, on his, his big punk rock booze cruise, whatever. Yep. He also, and can I say, he also went to Hemingway House, out yep. of license to kill. We'll let him and, tell that yeah, story, because it sounds amazing. It's amazing, yeah, honestly. He's, he's doing well to make us all very jealous so thank you steve <laughs> thanks steve yeah and we, yeah i'm really jealous of the photos and the fact he said oh no no i'll wait till he said oh uh, yeah we'll let him we'll let him tell the story it's looking pretty awesome though um okay that's fine so the, the basic plot then of never say never again we, we suspect is similar to thunderball is there is it are you wanting to go into that or just leave it as that then as i mean i don't I'm not entirely sure how it plays out. We can maybe go into I suppose, that yeah, because maybe best, it, yeah. um, I think I think again, um, Domino is it's her her brother is the I think the NATO pilot who um, is kind of used for Spectre but to take these atomic warheads. And there's a femme fatale instead of Fiona Volpe, we've got Fatima Blush. So they've changed names and things. He's decided yeah. that it's his own thing, right? Okay, so Mostly yeah, based no, on it. Right, yeah. that's fine. Then there's no point in trying to guess what the plot is going to be then. We might as well watch it. I'm just looking this up in the IMDb for the budget because it's said in Wikipedia about $130 million. Is that just because it's 80s because of inflation maybe? I don't know. Because that seemed like a fucking hell of a budget yeah. for non-official Bond film. Well, maybe they, maybe they were throwing money at it and then they never recouped it back. How much do they make think- a profit? We'll need to I think it was we'll quite successful. Ke- apparently, um, Kevin McClory was he was the sort of guy that just threw money at things and ended up in huge, right, huge that's debts. That's kind of I imagined it. Right. Just a, um, a heads up on this. I haven't seen this film. This is a brand first time watching experience for me, so I'm excited about that. I've never seen any clips of it, so this is completely fresh. So yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing this, especially in an aged Connery can't returning to a role that he obviously was younger in, you know, it'll be quite noticeable now that he's certainly aged. Okay, on that, we are ready to go. I'm ready to eat my food and we're going to watch Never Say Never Again and come back and give our spoilerific review. Bye-bye. 
and we are back from watching Never Say Never Again. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite something, wasn't it? Yeah, that was that was. I don't know how to describe that. That was that was all over the place. All right, let's just uh, let's summarize our thoughts, Gordon. I think it's kind of obvious from the beginning, but what do you think of Never Say Never Again? It just descended into complete silliness, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. After see, after watching Diamonds Are Forever, I was actually expecting my spirits to be redeemed and risen a wee bit with this film. I wasn't. I was kind of expecting another ver- sort of similar film to Diamonds Are Forever, but this was even more chaotic, nonsensical, <laughs> clustered. It was just tonally. It was all over the place. The music was horrendous. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm tearing into it right now, but I can't hide the fact that this film was a bit of a car crash. Yeah. Um, a speeded up car crash, yeah. uh, similar to some of the car chase sequence early in the, later in the film. Okay, so yeah, not big fans of the film, it's fair to say. It had moments where we burst, we were in actual, <laughs> I was in tears laughing, but this is not due to the <laughs> film's intention. Hurting. Yeah. I was almost pissing my pants. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's start with one scene particular, but we'll come to that. Aye, where where do we start with this? Um Connery then, let's just talk about Connery returning. Yeah, yeah. It seems like a, a safe place to start. What do you think of the aged Sean Connery? Well, I think at the start of the film it, it seemed like they were acknowledging his age quite well and they were they were taking advantage of the fact it was an older one remember the line with M he says I'm doing more teaching now rather than doing and M was saying like how he was out of shape and you know similar to Thunderball and the, the Thunderball book as well and it looked as though that might work to an extent, but later on they were having him like run around on horseback. <laughs> Women were like putting his hands, just falling to his feet like half of his age. I know, it was creepy as hell. I mean, it was creepy in the original Bond films when Sean Connery was like late thir- mid-30s to late 30s and he's getting all these 20-year-olds. Now it, it is like Oh, it's like really sordid now. <laughs> yeah, it's just. I don't have too much of a problem with that because you know I'm used to the the later Roger Moore films. Like it's been but... normalised. That's the problem, I suppose. But it does. You know, you know, you're watching it now and you're going like Kim Basinger as what she must. This is eighty three, did we say? Yeah, she must have been quite young. It was before she did Batman. Six wasn't years it? before Batman. This is, and I thought she was about in her mid twenties then, so she must have been at least eighteen or nineteen or something. Yeah. Uh, so and, yeah, uh, what were you going to say? Oh, just that. Yeah, I mean, he definitely. It was very slow in this film as well. He, he plodded along. Oh yeah, know, the, the Sean Connery worse. plod was back. <laughs> um, you know, at the beginning, he had a bit more charisma. It felt, it felt as if as the film went on, he kind of was just like he was hamming it in, and it was all very. He, again, it was a kind of phoned in performance. I don't think he was really. You didn't feel when he was even in peril that he even cared there was a scene where he was handcuffed to the to the wall and and then sort of just a smirk in his face like yeah yeah it's just another day <laughs> uh let's so sean connery yeah i would say pretty much uh along the lines of his uh, diamonds are forever per- kind of performance it wasn't uh, it wasn't particularly great it was interesting in seeing him back in the bond role at i would say i did get a kick out of the start the first third of the film is kind of it was interesting just seeing someone else's perspective on the Bond films and how they would do it. It's an interesting 
actual idea and I kind of like that um, because it has been, I suppose, under the kind of vision and control of Broccoli and Saltzman and 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 uh, later Barbara Broccoli as well and the Eon uh, sort of structure. So it has been one kind of version, obviously Fleming's original stories as well. So it was interesting seeing how someone else would do Bond. Of course, it's a shame that it was almost completely inept. <laughs> um, nothing really worked. Um, where else do you want to go with this? Largo, well, maybe? Yeah. Or where, where um, are we going to take it first? We'll talk about Largo in a minute then. Yeah, well, just to add to what we said about Connery there, Steve. Um, he kind Yeah, he showed... I liked his charisma a lot of the time, especially the first third of the film. He had some good lines, but it's as though, it was as though he was talking out the corner of his mouth for a lot of it. Did you notice that? It was as though he had like, a really stingy ulcer or something. Was sort of like that, you know? <laughs> You even notice that comparing it to the earlier Bond films, and he just he didn't show the kind of dark, ruthless spy quality you got in the earlier films. Even I think in Thunderball itself, and to an extent, you only live twice. Maybe it helped in you only live twice to an extent that we said that he did look quite pissed off a lot of the time, and you know he maybe should have been a bit more pissed off in that film, a bit more aggressive at times. But he just uh, kind of he's like just some guy enjoying himself on holiday. I felt see when he was in the Bahamas. You know, especially like the second half of the film, you think you actually it was as though you forgot he was a spy. You had uh, to remind yourself that he's he's meant to be sort of undercover. He was just he didn't seem to really care that you know, um, in case anyone uh, knew, like uh, it, like he didn't seem worried about getting his cover blown. He was like. <laughs> And then he was in, remember that big him and Felix Leiter both in these jetpacks, which you could hear like God. two miles away. You know, they were, you'd think they'd be trying to be inconspicuous. You know, there must have been a more like, obvious way, subtle way to drop down from, because essentially that was all those jetpacks were for. I know. Was like getting out from the, the helicopter, whatever it is, and, and landing in, <laughs> in, into the water. You know, I'm sure there's other ways to do that. Maybe a rope or something. I know. Oh, I know. God. And it was, uh, some of his outfits were oh, kind of over the top. Jesus. I mean, you know, the dungarees. Dungarees, <laughs> that's a first. I've never seen, and I don't think we ever should see, James Bond or Sean Connery in dungarees. That was a weird sight. <laughs> it was, yeah. Oh. And, they, and walking around Largo's yacht in a dressing gown for no apparent reason with a glass, it was like a glass of wine or champagne. <laughs> we'll get to Largo in a minute anyway, but yeah, no, that was weird. It, it's almost like um, Kevin McClory has disdain for the character and wanted to show, a, a, you know, a sort of less cool and awesome side of the character, you know, like he's, it's a weird representation of the, of that, the Bond world. And uh, it was almost, they took bits or what they felt were bits from the Bond films. I think he's a playboy and things like that. And it's, it was a bit more actiony, especially towards the end. But I mean, it, it missed the mark so yeah. many times um, just from, you know, production quality like camera cuts some weird weird close-ups and um sort of also the and the music we'll get to as well that's a whole other that's a whole other podcast well the 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 interesting thing is obviously mccory ian fleming and jack whittingham were the three guys that originally collaborated on the, the original screenplay even before the novel was made and it was written along the lines of like quite a serious thriller like Thunderbolt. So it's interesting how McClory oversaw this 
this kind of almost spoof-like production because we talk about Casino Royale the 1967 Casino Royale being a spoof of Bond you know this felt like a spoof for a lot and you, of course Steve remember that you mentioned during the film Irvin Kershner I was the director, director of Empire Strikes Back you know one of the most serious films ever made and one of the greatest films ever made I almost want to check that it's definitely Irvin Kershner that did this because I cannot believe that that that's weird that is i mean everyone you know it's easy to i suppose if you're not given the right material i suppose it's um if the vision isn't quite if the, if the, the concept is flawed maybe of the film then maybe it, you know you will you will turn on a stinker with certain things some of the cast was poor in this film this was really <laughs> poorly cast it's strange because edward fox is a great actor but his version of M it was just so over the top I think that a lot of character that summed up a lot of characters in this film just over the top and with Bond they really kind of played in the, the playboy angle rather than you know the, the spy I thought I'd, we, we talked about how the film gradually it started okay and got gradually worse I actually liked the, the opening sequence where it turned out it was actually a training mission you're meant to believe that Bond was a, like it turned out he's eventually rescuing some girl and um, like taking out all these dudes in the process. Like he's, I liked his little frisbee type device that makes a bird noise to scare all the guards away. And he's like, he's wearing this kind of jungle commando outfit and like finding his way into this old house and and then it's it's quite cool. He gets stabbed with the girl and it turns out it's a training exercise. And I gotta say that I I love the films where. Bond, you see the double O's or you see Bond and Train Exercise, I like it and Loving Daylights but well, obviously it's done so much better than this and also <laughs> well, die, seeing Die Another Day and this is one of the better points of Die Another Day, it's like the sort of simulator thing um, where Bond's got these glasses on it's like a um, kind of mission simulator thing, but anyway that was one of the better points of the film. Yeah you're right, it did, it took a, a, a quite a quick cliff dive um i don't know at which point exactly you mentioned when rowan atkinson appeared in the film that suddenly the tone just went like they, they sort of threw the script out the, win- out the window know. and just decided to just riff on whatever his character was so over the top you read him in as well actually having mr bean in it you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh, i know people talk about uh, over the top characters and bond and there's more when we approach the Roger Moore era, but that's probably the most over-the-top Bond character I, I can remember. Just the way he talks, the way uh, he looks. It, didn't, it felt parody. It was um, someone doing an impression of someone. It didn't feel like an actual human being. And it's hard to take it because Sean Connery is not reacting and he's kind of... He looks like he's trying to act like you would the normal scene and it just doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. The tone <laughs> is so off. We even uh, said earlier in the film about how um how um over the top M was and, and his voice uh, do come along, Bond. Oh, and and, and uh, your attention, double seven. No, can't you seduce his wife? Does he? Yeah. And then, the, but then what even is even worse than his voice appears over the radio at the end. And again, you know, the head of MI six, he doesn't really care much about keeping a low profile. He's he's just like, Bond, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you do miss uh, Bernard Lee a little on. <laughs> Bernard, I, he's not quite Bernard Lee. Uh, but like I said, it, it, it's strange seeing Edward Fox like that. You should see him in Dave the Jackal. He, he rules in that film. He obviously has a certain, you know, he's got range, but not quite enough range, maybe. It's just his, his vision of the character. Who knows if that came from the producer or, or Kirshner or, or what other writers, but 
Uh, I think Kirshner's maybe to blame a little. I think he could have reined some of this in. You got a, he's a director. He should have been able to sort of mm-hmm. uh, spot some of this. I mean, if this is what they're going for, it's a weird route to take. Um, I know the 80s, by this point, the Roger Moore films were in full flow. There was a lot of camp humour in some of that stuff, and maybe they've it seemed analogous to, to use that. But, it, well, it hasn't aged well, and it, the jokes aren't funny where there were... As sort of jokes are used very loosely but the moments that were meant for comedy just didn't work but the, there were so many points in this film that we were laughing and it was all <laughs> for the wrong reasons let's get to Largo now I feel like this is one of the weakest things in the film I thought his performance was dreadful it was just a weird character but it was written weird as well to be fair kind of offbeat it, was, it just didn't fit at all I didn't know what to, to make of them it was like a stroppy teenager at times, even like throwing, um, smashing things up because he was angry at how Domino had betrayed him, and it you know became like a soap opera at times. It was, again, it was over the top, and you know I I see it all this through my Thunderball tinted specs, like Adolfo Celli's Largo, who was bloody brilliant. You know, comparing him to the Largo in this. Yeah, I want to reassess my Adolfo Celli review. I, I can't remember what I said in the Thunderball cast. I think I was impressed by him, but bloody hell. <laughs> like, yeah, that, I mean, that was a great performance now, I realise. Um, and this was not... I mean, what one of those scenes... What kind of Bond villain walks into the to the lair or whatever, the submarine or whatever it was? Was it, was it the yacht? Yeah. And just all you know, the pleasantries. Hello, good morning. I say good morning to everyone as if he's just walking into he's just a normal office worker. He's meant to be you said yourself, um he's meant to be menacing. You know, a, a Bond villain the same and you said as well Blofeld, you know, he wasn't menacing. Oh, Blofeld as well. And I couldn't believe the credits when it came up. Max von Seidel. <laughs> Max von Seidel is usually he's a very can play very menacing characters. Um I'm I'm pretty certain I remember him from Minority Report, a great villain, and there's countless others. Uh, I've I've seen voiceover from games and things like that. But yes, you get Max von Sydow, you expect I know a memorable performance, and usually for the right reasons. But well, this time it wasn't memorable because this Blofeld was oh banal and. You know, again, you're comparing to all the Blofelds we've seen from the previous Bond films, and this is nowhere even near the the worst of them. Oh, it's just it's, yeah. <laughs> and what a strange, strange film. Focusing when he he made that video holding the words ransom, just it just focused, and then his cat doing all these various things. Uh, like it was like the cat was talking. Was it so was the odd. voice was coming out, but it was just the cat. The the, the 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 world leaders were watching this massive video of this cat. It was like your YouTube video with cats. <laughs> Somebody stopped it for you. I know. I, I don't know if I missed something, but it was as though as well that his ransom demands weren't fully explained. And I think a lot of the plot wasn't fully explained. It's maybe only because we've seen Thunderball. We, we understood to an extent what was happening. But when Bond was in Nassau, like I said, it was as though the... Um, Again, like in Thunderball, Largo had taken hold of the the atomic bombs and kind of hidden them underwater, away from prying eyes. But for about an hour of the film, it seemed to completely forget all about the nuclear bombs, and they only came in like in the last 20 minutes. And it was never even made clear to me, unless I missed it, what the intentions were. Nope, I do not remember. It was just like Bond has to recover the nuclear bombs, and that's it, and he recovers in about 10 seconds. There's all this fast editing at the end as it was rushed you know largo's death he gets 
cartoons oh by God. Domino, like kind of like Thunderball, but it's, it's done so quickly. And to me, I didn't even know if that was Largo that get killed at first. It was really strange. Um, Kim Basinger's character Domino yeah. kills him, and Kirstner's let it linger. But the scene looks so confusing because. She's fired a harpoon and it's half second. You see it's, it's killed the character Bond was wrestling with. And it, it was, you have to assume that was Largo because we haven't seen a lot of his face or anything. And then she's kind of like un, indecisive. It, you're not sure what to think. Is she sorry? Is she, cause she's kind of like turning around a lot. And Bond's like, they kind of just, it's really awkward. It's a really, it looks like a blooper. It doesn't look like it's a scene that you would expect to be in the film, but it's also left in and it's just little weird decisions and uh yeah what, what else have we uh the music then let's yeah. let's touch on the music remember there was the the title song was okay i think they played it at the beginning of the film and obviously it was a glaring obvious thing about this film was no bond gun barrel no james bond theme or even anything remotely like the the john barry music we'll get onto the like the crazy kind of score of the film but i mean on the title track just very quickly see i was just gonna say it, it sounded very muddy seeing they played it at the beginning like with the opening credits it was like it was just recorded through some guy's walkman you yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah um i know it, the production value I, I, what was the budget for this film it was a hunt it was a bit th- was it thirty six million dollars? Right. Okay. Well, I mean, Quite a lot. yeah, not exactly um, nothing for the eighties. That's I would imagine that was pretty decent. I can't say for certain, but yeah, the the production quality of a lot of that. So I don't know if they just if most of the budget went to paying shot for Sean Connery to return. Um, as a bit of a, an fu to to bar, to the broccoli, um, and Eon, but um, it just it lacked that sort of style and elegance that the Bond franchise has and it just it suffered really from not having John Barry's score and uh, a great title sequence that title sequence is completely forgettable yeah well I think the action the the actual song I mean sorry yeah because the action was good, and I liked the reveal of Bond. Almost like the, the way he's slowly revealed when you have a new Bond actor for the first time, or Connery returning Diamonds Are Forever, how his face appears behind the, the bush. That was quite good. But I think that... I mean, the score itself, the music was so eclectic, and you mentioned like jumping between decades. There, there was you know one moment it was like music at Honey I Shrunk the Kids. The next <laughs> it was the next it was there was there was music sounded kind of Star Wars esque, but like, it didn't it often didn't fit in with the scenes. No, it didn't. And again, not that Kirshner's Kurt, getting any involvement probably in that, but it felt like he'd hired John Williams to come in and do some some of the music for some particular scenes. It was mostly the scenes revolving around anything to do with the warheads being moved around that was where the star wars music kicked in and then it would abruptly end and then you would jump back into sort of porno-esque music um for when bond's slinking around somewhere or and then there was there was because they had that music when he was underwater because one of the strengths of thunderball which by the way i think is a killer soundtrack and probably better than Goldfinger even but and you know Underwater and Thunderball there was a lot of those kind of dreamy versions of like the Thunderball theme and the Bond theme in that and it worked really well and that that to me is like the sound of underwater music but there was a bit I think it was the first time Bond went under diving with Fatima Blush there was absolutely no explanation given to why he did it or what he was looking <laughs> for but the music that was like we the, that the was song. like the kind of porno style music you were talking about it didn't fit at all with it. that's not underwater music it was that's, weird. It that's just work weird at all. it was all over the place there was music that felt 
I think it was one of the chase sequences that had like a 50s it was a lot of 50s music it felt like horror 50s horror at one point appeared there was a 60s a lot of 60s stuff that it was so dated some I some of it was like these I old kind of 50s horror films like these kind of catastrophe films like the land of time forgotten so there was a bit and you know there was a bit they overused wind instruments there was a bit like crazy trumpet souls <laughs> crazy saxophone music it's like we, I mean we've talked about the great music and the you know the early Eon Bond films the official Bonds and the great use of wind instruments like saxophones trumpets it's as though some guy just appeared in the crew and points his finger and said these wind instruments, they work well. Let's shove in some trumpets and horns and just cobble it together and hope for the best. Yeah, that's that's kind of the impression I get for a lot of this film. Uh, the settings, again, weren't completely memorable. They weren't... You missed the Ken Adams sort of massive set oh, yeah. um, and, and the sort of vision and kind of creativity that he had, with, especially with a villain layer. That was all... It was a lot of it shot on location, I imagine, and then where it wasn't, wasn't particularly memorable you know blowfield's kind of manor or house or whatever they were having the the sort of meeting was just it looked like any old rich man's house it just kind of didn't look yeah it didn't look particularly outstanding or anything but again that fitted probably with the the, the sort of banal blowfield that we got in this film mm-hmm. uh, and the end sort of finale there was a sequence in these caves that at one point we felt were the inspiration for the GoldenEye multiplayer level in the caves, which my interest peaked very slightly, but just because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they were they were okay. It looked like actually like a film set. It actually looked like, you mentioned it, Gordon, the, the tracks looked as if a camera rig would be going along that and things like that. Mm-hmm. It was lit and stuff like that. And I think that that did give the caves, although they were kind of bright and all that, looked like a film set. At least it it was a different setting for Bond, so that, that you know, was, there was a slight positive there. I would say that was maybe one of the better scenes. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't a brilliant scene, but it was the one of the better scenes, actually. It felt for that little 10-minute sequence that we might be watching, might be watching a Bond film. Yeah. One of the strengths, and seeing Thunderball, um, one of the strengths in that, I mentioned before, it's the race against time. With uh, to recover the nuclear bombs before they're they're used against you know the Americans or, or the UK you know to destroy a major city the whole ransom demand thing but you you didn't get the impression of any like kind of tension into like a deadline or anything in that and the you know the plot was just never fully explained and it wasn't clear what what Blofeld uh, or, or um, Largo what they're actually going to do with these devices it was just kind of like action for action's sake of it yeah characters were doing things people wouldn't normally do or say <laughs> things like that people were turning up in scenes like was whoa, that scene with all those peasants turning up or these people turning up and it was like a western uh, with uh, horses and things like that and then bond grabs a horse and rescues the girl from all of these villagers, it was... Oh, I really don't understand that bit. That was where... And I, it's, you know, it started off looking very menacing. Bond and um, Domino were tied up by Largo, and you got the impression that Largo was turning into a real psychopath and becoming... Showing qualities, you know, you'd like a real Bond villain to have. And, 
you think, what are the vultures going to do? Are they going to start, like, kind of attacking Bond? But then all these peasants show up on horses. This big guy looks like Pavarotti's sitting there. I don't I don't know who he is. I don't know why he's there. I don't know why they're there. There's, there's just no explanation. And Largo just pisses off and goes back to his boat. I mean, it's, it's, it just didn't make any sense. And, and the bit which really made us laugh, of course, remember Bond oh, and, and Domino riding the back of the horse, galloping along the, it was like the top. It was like a temple or something. On, and then on this cliff edge, and he... he he seems to not even realise he's approaching a cliff edge and the, it's this close-up of Connery's face and it, they're just... It's one of the worst cinema moments I've ever seen, but <laughs> at the same time, I've never laughed so much <laughs> in my same life. Uh, uh, it was so funny. It was so bad. What <laughs> were they thinking? I think if you were to, to watch that in slow motion, the horse didn't look as if, like... It looked like somebody had just got a picture of something on a horse, put it really small, <laughs> and just kind of, like, dragged it down the, the frame and just so it looked like there was something on a horse falling. It looked horrendous. I know. That close-up as well was so over the top. I know. Oh my I was like, that's the craziest scene in Bond history I think I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing is, the bits of this film I seem to have seen from time to time on on TV, it's all it's been the kind of better parts early in the film, like when he's at the health farm and you know he's at the MI6 headquarters. And I didn't really it didn't really give me an impression of all the chaos that was to follow. Yeah. I just I totally didn't expect it. And do you, do you know what? I mean, you know how much I've slagged off Dimes Are Forever. I thought Bond can get any worse than that but I actually think Downs Are Forever was better than this film I and, do as and well. I, I was trying I was going through the film about halfway through I thought nah, it's getting dodgy it's probably not as bad as Downs Are Forever but it got <laughs> progressively worse and even like people talk about oh Mr. Wynn and Mr. Kidd are over the top they are but you know, even they are slightly menacing. The the they the were, villains weren't yeah. really menacing us, apart from I think Fatima Blush was good, and I'll I'll maybe return to her in a minute. Well, but. let's talk about her now then. Yeah, I thought actually she was really good as a femme fatale. Maybe not, you know, quite Fiona Volpe, but the craziness you talked about the crazy outfits that gave her that little yeah. kind of different. It showed she was a bit of a wacko. You know, it's like one of the I don't know what it was the sort of. Um, like dress she was wearing it was like she had a sort of seashell around her neck it was weird and it was this kind of pvc material it was, it was kind of 80s weird. glam i think and with yeah. a sort of tra- kind of transylvania look or something it was something strange about her i mean she was pretty decent i would say a little hammed up as well towards yeah. the end especially with that scene with her and bond towards her death scene um quite a prolonged scene with them talking and her, her trying to get him to convince to say that she's the best that he slept with that was silly but at least it kind of showed what a psycho she was like you have to write this down and I, I, I liked her crazy. It made her come across incredibly petty. <laughs> yeah i thought yeah i totally agree with that and we both agreed though the the kind of um left field sort of style of her the, the clothes and it's kind of similar to Maidy and I've used to kill did, maybe that I did get a Maidy vibe which obviously yeah. was after this film so maybe they, they actually took some inspiration from this film what was the other thing that we noticed that we thought might have taken some inspiration from this film was the laser the single best maybe 10 seconds of the film was essentially Bond using a laser on things that was the most James Bond this film ever got and we, we were amazed because we thought of oh, the laser watch that that was this, you know, cool new gadget we all know from Goldeneye. But this, you know, this was actually the first laser watch and never say never again. And he used it very quickly, like, to get out his handcuffs when Largo said them. I appreciated up. that. Um, okay, so we've pretty much covered um, many 
many things where it, where it f- failed us. There's that I can't really. I'm honestly struggling to think of where the positives of the film really yeah. that we've not already mentioned. I mean. I think it might have been more of a positive if this film had um, obviously a different film, different cast. If they'd just gone with a, even a slightly more different story and not tried to make it a remake of Thunderball, because again, it, it takes away the magic of Thunderball. You know, they should have kind of made it more of its own entity. I think, and it might have succeeded a bit more. I think it actually makes Thunderball a much, even a much, much better film. To show I saw that's how what I mean. Easily yeah. You can mess that story up. You realise yeah. the, the incredible achievement that the, the filmmakers had with Thunderball. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I love Thunderball so much, and I said how it's really up there. I mean, in some ways, it's actually better than Goldfinger, and I think that's part of the reason I found this film hard to take. I mean, so, while you're saying about the positive, Steve, I mean, like, yeah, the train mission at the start was good. I thought the Felix Leiter was all right, and it was actually better than the, the Felix, the different actor that played Downs Are Whoever, uh, Downs Are Forever, but, who, you know, it was rubbish, I thought, but, mm. and, um, I mean, what other stuff? I, I like, it was quite a cool touch. Um, Fatima puts the, basically puts the bond, the bomb under Bond's bed in the hotel room, but he goes to bed with the woman on the other side of the hotel and it blows up and she realizes she's got the wrong room and he just kind of shrugs it off. Yeah. That, that's quite a clever kind of thing. Um, I thought the tango scene was quite good. Remember him and Domino doing the tango? I thought it was a ridiculous way to tell her that her brother, brother is died. dead. But I thought the whole the whole spectacle, because you've never seen Bond doing this kind of really intense dance. That was kind of cool. It's funny though, there wasn't the film was bereft of music a lot of the time. There's a Maybe that was just as well because some of the music say, was yes. shocking. But <laughs> you know, there was a lot. There was a long, a lot of long scenes without music. It was an overlong film as well because it was similar in length to Thunderball. But Thunderball, I think, deserved a lot of that length, and it was necessary. But and this was just too long. It's and you know, let, let's just long. add. You know, let's just add an extra half an hour so Bond can say a few more cheesy lines. That was kind of what it was it, about. There was so much that could have gone from this film. It was unbelievable. Um, a lot of chaff. Uh, it was just. Yeah. Uh, it honestly felt like they 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 got. You know, they said to Sean Connery, "We need you back. It'll be an fu to the bro- broccoli, and also we'll film it probably near your home in in the Bahamas or Jamaica or wherever it is. You don't even have to leave your home too far." And um, it'll be an easy day. And that's the impression I get from Sean Connery and this film. It's just. Oh, it was so such a strange film to watch. Over the top film, over the top characters, rubbish special effects. I think as well most of the time. Some of the gun sound effects were terrible. There wasn't even a lot of gunfire. What? Yeah, they were, you're right. There wasn't even a lot of gunfire or guns used until later in the film. There's a lot of just kind of ropey explosions. <laughs> the 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 queue was kind of oh, interesting that's a weird as well. Scene as well. I wasn't sure what I thought of that queue. Um, uh, I mean, it's sort of endearing character in a way, but he didn't. It's not like Desmond Lyons could kind of a wee bit of a rivalry with Bond, but he was just like, oh, oh, right, Mister Bond, it's good to see you again. Yeah, yeah. We've missed having you around. Can I know? complain about the sort of facilities, really? Um, you know, and I mean, when you looked around at that set, no wonder, it just looked uh, like a car garage, as you pointed out. Uh, it was a bit of a, a lousy place for the, you know, the members of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I know. Um, yeah, so yeah, he was all right. He was no nowhere near as bad as M. I would say the money penny was, but yeah, it was fine. Kind of, yeah, she was all right. Yeah, she was just kind of there to sort of like 
to have money penny there. I think that she was all right. There wasn't um like major chemistry between her no, and Connery. No. I like I quite like the the line by Connery, I'm to eliminate all free radicals. Because <laughs> uh, M says um basically tells him how he has to sort out his dying, he's sending him to the health farm. I thought that that, that was a I mean that was a concept that originally came from the Thunderball original screenplay in the, the original novel. Uh, you know, following that. And you know, I like how he, he kind of suggested that Bond wasn't eating well and the way Bond kind of winces when he gets told in the health farm that this is the new diet he's having to go on because the Bond from the, the book you know apparently you know he obviously drank and smoked too much but he you know he, he didn't eat as well as he could you know so it was good how they kind of you know took that in I mean that's probably about all the real positives I can say I think what did you think of the uh, the video game section with Largo when they're playing I mean, I suppose it's the equivalent of of the sort of um, Baccarat scene or whatever it is. Uh, they're playing in the casino, but in this case, it's a much more 80s kind of elementary video game. Yeah. What did you think of that? It I was... thought it was nonsensical, to be honest. Yeah. It wasn't fully explained what what he was to do and how he would beat him. And, and the thing is, um, Bond was clearly a novice at this game. And the, like the first two sort of levels... He get easily defeated. Then the last one, when he, he says, "Let's play for the whole world," like the kind of ultimate higher stakes, and he just wins. But it's not clear how he wins. You know, yeah. you don't become an expert in two minutes. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't make sense. And uh, when Bond usually bettered villains at activities, it was he would do it the likes of the golf scene and Goldfinger, or the you know, he with, outsmarts with, them usually. He outsmarts them, or he uses his, his ingenuity, or he catches them cheating. There wasn't any of that. It was just like. Oh, he suddenly became great at this computer <laughs> game he's never played before. It was just like shoot the squares. I didn't understand. It was, I mean, Tetris would have made more sense. It was so silly. Oh, it was so bad. Um, I mentioned some of the, the other comedy stuff where it was wrong. You know, you had comedy faints in there and things like that. Um, there was a scene, I think one of the, the moments that set us up for the tone of this film was that moment when, I can't remember who it was, if it was just a henchman or whatever, but the door hits him in the face like a comedy oh, yeah. faint. In some ways, that was a kind of... It was like setting us up for, okay, this film does not take itself seriously, it's a bit silly. It obviously didn't go as far as the late, later parts of the film, but that was kind of queuing you up for some of the nonsense that was going to follow. And that did... What followed that was that crazy fight sequence uh, with that, that guy in the health place. Um, yeah. You know, Bond gets smashed through glass, right? Twice. <laughs> it doesn't look doesn't look as if his hair's moved. He doesn't he's got no blood, no cuts, nothing. He's back up. The other guy as well, he got all sort of boiling tea or something thrown in his face. <laughs> no effect. I know. And the guy, he doesn't again, another person that just doesn't really even try and keep a low profile, so he attacks Bond in the gym, right? You'd think he may be a silenced pistol or something, but Bond kind of knocks him out of the way. But then he just kind of slowly strolls after Bond, not in any rush. He just he just kind of falls him down like hallways when he knows that there's clearly loads of the public about. He doesn't really seem to give a shit. He just and then he starts fighting him in the kitchen. It just you know there's got to be easier and just repeatedly kind of punching more, hitting them with this little whip thing. It, you know there's got to be easier ways of disposing with. Why can't he just have? eliminated him in the gym because no one else was there no let's let's just go into the kitchen and you know mess around there for oh, a while it was nonsense and it ended with the, the i don't know why this is what stopped him but just bond's urine yeah was the was the you know was the thing that blinded him 
I got to say, for a lot of the criticism that the Moore films get and a lot of it unjustified, people point to like Moonraker and Octopus. We'll say Moonraker especially. For, you know, a lot of the gags in these films, there's some like serious, very serious spy works. But if you look at the first third of Moonraker, Bond, um, you know, in, in Drax's big mansion, for example, and in Venice, like, going just you know kind of creeping about doing spy things cracking safes and stuff and he does a lot of that in octopus you know and that you know he has very serious conversations with serious villains and serious allies you just don't get you like you said it's a it's a film that just doesn't take itself seriously it, it doesn't get what made those films good it thought humor and sex appeal and some throw in a reaction sequence in a street you know like that one that's in this film that's awfully done um is what makes a Bond film, but there's so much more to it. There is panache style and as well as that tension built over the film with your villain, you know, that is a key integral factor of what makes some of these best, these villains. You, you're someone who really loves your Bond villains and, and the relationship between Bond and how they interact. One of the things you love about Goldfinger is the, how he, the golf sequence. Mm-hmm. That's great. And that sets up what Bond films did. It was the interplay between the characters, but this film didn't... When it tried it, it was god-awful, cringeworthy dialogue between Largo and Bond. Um, Largo, um, specifically, I mean, Bond look. Sean Connery looks as if he's like... I think by that point in the film, I got the feeling that he'd realise this is going to be a stinker, and he's just like, I'll just whatever, go along with it. Because you get the feeling that, how can he have thought this, this um, Largo performance was going to work? It just so bad i don't know i'm I'm reading into it a lot but that's that was the Mm. my thought process when i watched this film despite his age i thought in some sometimes i thought he looked better in this than he did than diamonds are forever maybe kind of just kind of looking kind of okay for his age at times but i i mean connery i wouldn't blame connery too much for the film for what he had to work with he still he still showed moments of that Connery charisma and that zest. He definitely does. And you're right, he did look good for for his age. It sounds that sounds like a a backhanded compliment, but he he, yeah, he did. Certainly bronze. He looks like he's never been out of the sun, you know, like (laughs) um he looked very healthy and things like that. But you can see why I mean, the women women would go for them and that sort of thing. So he's still got that kind of he does have that sex appeal, but it's when he's around all these other characters that it drags that drags the, his performance down a little as well. Yeah, um, and yeah. see the in in Nasso, you know how are you meant to you know fathom him and the Rowan Atkinson character. They're they're meant to be sort of cloak and dagger MI six operatives, but they're swagging around in like Tony Montana esque like <laughs> kind of whitey creamy color gangster type suits. Rowan Atkinson, when he that scene when he walks away from Bond and he's like Bond says something about enjoy the sights or whatever it is, and then Rowan Atkinson pretends to hide behind a pillar and he's trying to kind of pretend he's out of sight or whatever. It's it's the sort of thing that you'd see in the the spy films that he does now, Johnny English. And it felt like that was the first breath of the Johnny English character being born. Um and it was just oh not not great again. And I got the feeling Sean Connery looked like it kinda looked like half shrug after that, like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and the film really went downhill at that point. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I don't think we want to spend much more on this one. Um we're gonna come to the rating now. I'm gonna go first. This is a one star film for me, and I've never given a one star film review on this podcast which is a first so history has been made from my point of view i 
as the film went on, I thought, okay, at the beginning it was kind of a free, and then some real weird stuff happened. Some of the creepy, we haven't touched on where Bond has dated. Uh, we get the Bond dated theme in there as well. Bond is dated. Bond is dated. Sexist, misogynist, he don't care. Bond is dated. License to offend. But, yeah, it, there was like moments where he was kind of giving the massage to Kim Basinger, and I thought this is a bit, a bit weird, a bit prolonged. You mentioned the the... For about an hour at this point, the the missiles haven't been mentioned, but we've got loads of scenes of Bond just feeling up Kim Basinger and doing all sorts of dancing and things like that. It was just oh, all over the place tonally. Humour was awful, um, and I really just didn't enjoy it. And it is the film, by the time the second, even the third act, essentially, I knew this was a one-star film. There was no coming back. And in that cliff-edge horse sequence... I mean, I was buckling with laughter. We had to rewind it just to watch it again, but that does <laughs> it still doesn't rescue it. Being a guilty pleasure doesn't give it an extra star. It's still a one-star film. Gordon, what's your thoughts? Oh, I love James Bond. I mean, you guys know how much I love Bond in the franchise. I never thought I would give a Bond film a one-star. I'm going to have to go with you on this, yeah. Steve. That's a one out of five. I mean, it's a... It's its own separate entity from the rest of the Bond franchise, let's be honest. And I knew it was going into this film. From the, the bits of the film I saw before, I just didn't expect <laughs> it to be so cluttered and crazy and nuts and mental and just all over the place. And it just... It, about halfway through the film, and maybe it was still a two, but it just it just gets so bad towards that's, the end. That's exactly how well, I felt. Just so over the top. Um, again, um, you know unrealistic model work as well there was better model work in Thunderball which was you know 18 years before um, just not not great performance Largo didn't like it's like I went into this thinking it's a poor man's Thunderball I knew it would be but it's not it's not just a poor man's Thunderball it's 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 worse than Diamonds Are Forever it's and a that, poor man's Diamonds Are Forever I, 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 you know I said how bad Diamonds Are Forever and that it you know that really takes some beating and to think Kevin McClory wanted to do another Thunderball remake, God, thank God he didn't. He was even going to try and do one in the 90s. But even, like I said, even Diamonds Are Forever, there, it does still that Bond formula in, in some points. I never thought I would rate a film worse yeah. than that. But yeah, um, I, we had to do this review. We had to get it out of our system. I wonder if the Casino Royale parody is, is better than this. It must be, surely. It probably is, yeah. Okay, that is unanimous. A one-star review for Never Say Never Again. I'm never going to watch that again. Yeah, Although, I was going to use that I one. I do want Fran to watch this film because I think Fran would love this film. I, I want think, Fran and Steve to watch We need to I watch it I, 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 Judging from Steve's reaction, Diamonds Are Forever, I don't think Steve could finish this film. I genuinely do not think he could finish watching this film. I Maybe give him the preconception. Just tell him straight up, this film is awful. Watch it at least so you don't critically review it as I'm going to enjoy myself here. You have to go and watch this film knowing this is a car wreck. This film is terrible. <laughs> and I, I honestly I never I, thought it would be so bad. I said it before, you know. I don't normally describe films like that. I usually try to more respectful um, because people have put their life and soul to it and things like that. And I don't like the idea of, you know, what have I done? How can I criticize something? But when something, you know, I generally struggle to really struggle to find things that I really enjoyed about this film um, that were intentionally there um, so that's why you know I'm coming across very harsh it's like um, you know a bunch of schoolboys were given you know yeah, a early version of Thunderbolt script and a, a decent budget and, and certain actors and 
do you do with this what you want and that's what they came up with uh, yeah. it was so i'm glad for living like dying obviously we'll get back to the you know the proper bondaf podcast the the four of us of course um we we were it might be a bit of a wait till love and let die, but um, our legions of fans <laughs> demanded I think another podcast. Yeah. They were, were, they've been battering down our doors, haven't they? Yeah, do, do dogs and cats count as legions of fans? I, I don't I, know. I, I, don't, I don't think so. They don't really like and follow things a lot, so yeah, um, it's a poor show from them. Okay, but, yeah, we'll be back for love and let die, and I can't wait. Yeah, yeah, excellent. All right, and thank you very much for joining me on this horrendous, uh, terrible porn music soundtrack film of a movie. <laughs> God. I- oh, dear. Oh, dear. At least we've got Live and Let Die to look forward to. Okay. Until that time. Thank you, Gordon. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Steve. Uh, never again. Yeah, never. Over. Say, never again. Never watch again. But the Bond App podcast will return. Yep. Bye-bye. And the wink at the end. What the fuck? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know, I kind of liked it.